Well, this morning we're going to be talking about hermeneutics, but we're going to be talking about it from a little bit of a different angle. We've been taught, we just got to what are right hermeneutics last week. Today we're not going to really be talking about the method so much as the person. What are the qualifications for the faithful Bible interpreter? The question this morning is not, what must I do? We're going to answer that question over the weeks to come, but that's not the question this morning. The question this morning is, who must I be? Who do I have to be in order to be a Bible interpreter who is faithful? And I want to give you seven qualifications for a faithful Bible interpreter, and we're not going to get to all of them today. We're going to get to about three of them today, and then we'll, Lord willing, finish them next week. What are the qualifications to be a faithful Bible interpreter? First qualification, you must be born again. You must be born again. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the perspicuity of Scripture. Who can give me a good definition on perspicuity? Clarity. It's understandable. Scriptures are clear. They're able to be understood. And we said if you're having trouble understanding the text, the problem is not in the text. The problem is where? You. Failure to understand the Bible is not a problem with God's revelation. And it's also not merely a problem of interpretation. Because an unbeliever can go through the same process of interpretation, they can use the exact same methods that we use, and they will come to a completely different opinion on what the text means. The problem is not the text, nor merely the hermeneutic. Ultimately, all faulty biblical interpretation is the result of a sin-cursed mind. A mind that is incapable of understanding and comprehending, much less believing God's revealed truth. And there's a lot of places we can go to prove this, but I want to start by going to John chapter 8. If you want to grab your Bibles and go there. It's an interesting passage where Jesus is talking to a group of Jews. And these are Jews who at least profess to be believers. They claim to believe. Uh, John 8 verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Notice the key to being a disciple of Jesus is abiding in his word. And these are Jews that supposedly had come to believe in Jesus. But there's a problem. When you read the rest of the chapter, you find out this is not a real profession. Let me show you what the rest of the chapter says about them. Verse 34, they are slaves to sin. Verses 37, 40, and 59, they want to kill Jesus. Verse 42, he says, you do not love me. Verse 48 and verse 52, they blasphemed him. And then Jesus tells them who they are. Verse 38, verse 41, and verse 44, Jesus says they are children of Satan. They think they're believers. These people are deceived. They think they're children of God. But in reality, they're lost. What is their problem? They're sitting there listening to Jesus preach. In fact, the entire chapter is filled with them asking Jesus questions and him giving them very direct answers. And yet, they still don't get it. They still don't understand what he's saying. Let me show you. Look at verse 32. 
Jesus tells them, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Did they understand what he meant there? Didn't have a clue. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's seed, and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Is it true the Jews had never been enslaved to anyone at that point? Maybe they were just talking about them personally had never been enslaved. They were thinking physical enslavement. Is that what Jesus was talking about? Jesus wasn't talking about physical enslavement. He was talking about enslavement to sin. You can see that if you look at verses 34 and 35. They didn't understand it. Verses 37 and 38, Jesus tells them they are seeking to kill him because they follow the word of their father. And how do they answer? They answer by turning around saying, well, Abraham is our father. As if to suggest that Abraham would want to kill Jesus. But Jesus isn't talking about Abraham. Who's Jesus talking about? Satan. They don't get it. Verse 41, Jesus tells them they're doing the deeds of their father. That is, trying to kill Jesus. And they respond, we don't practice fornication. And so Jesus, verse 42, cuts straight to their heart. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of myself, but he sent me. How is it that these people just do not understand? Why do they not get anything Jesus is saying? Now, if there was anyone else preaching, you'd say, well, it's because it's a bad preacher. They have the greatest preacher that ever lived. The master communicator. The problem is not in the preaching. The problem is not in the message or in the messenger. Jesus answers the question of why they can't understand him. Verse 43. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are unable. Hearing here is not just talking about listening with the ears. It's hearing, comprehending, understanding, believing. You are not able. This is spiritual blindness. They don't have the ability to understand. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who their father is. Their father is Satan, and he speaks lies. But I want you to notice what Jesus says about these people. Verse 45, But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. You can believe the lies, but you don't have an ability to believe or to understand the truth. As an unbeliever, you are a child of Satan, and the only thing you are able on your own to understand and to believe is the lie. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. He said it explicitly in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 
and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. This word here for natural, you might say it's someone who is unspiritual, someone who is worldly. They function only in the physical realm and they have no real communion with God, with the Spirit of God. Lunida or Lonida, however you want to pronounce it, a Greek dictionary defines the term this way. In a number of languages, the equivalent of unspiritual is simply one who is not guided by God's Spirit or one who does not live in accordance with God's Spirit. They are not spiritual. They are earthly. They are physical. They are carnal. And this describes every unbeliever in the world. Every person who has not been born again is a natural man. Those who are not born again, he says, verse 14 again, they do not accept the depths of the Spirit of God. To accept here refers to receiving someone or receiving something with approval, to be accepting of it. What do they not accept? They do not accept the depths of the Spirit of God. That is, you might say, the spiritual things, the things taught by the Spirit, insights into the gospel, revealed truth, the natural man does not accept divine revelation. Why not? Verse 14. For they are foolishness to him. Notice the reason that they reject divine truth is not that the truth is hidden and obscure. They don't reject divine truth because they can't find it. It's not that God has hidden it behind symbols or mystical language or even in spiritual realities that are behind the text. That's not why they reject it. The unbeliever rejects the truth because they consider it foolishness. The Greek term here is moria. Same word, the same word group as moros. In the Old Testament, moros was used to describe a, an ungodly man who denied God. Psalm 14.1 the unbeliever has, uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the fool and the unbeliever, or in the Old Testament. Same thing in the New Testament, Matthew 25, the ten virgins, the foolish ones were the unprepared ones. This term refers to what is considered to be nonsense, what is considered to be stupid and ludicrous. God actually uses this term, foolishness, to describe the wisdom of the world. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 19, For the wisdom of the world, of this world is foolishness before God. Take the smartest, brightest intellects of this world, and God looks at their wisdom and says, that's just stupid. That's ludicrous. This nonsensical way of thinking is characteristics of un, uh, it's characteristic of an unbeliever. And this kind of wisdom cannot get you to a knowledge of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of, of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, but was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The world sits here and says, we're so wise, we're so intelligent. All that stuff in your Bible is just foolishness. And God says, look, I'll save billions of people with what you think is foolish what you think is silly and nonsense. And foolishness here is our term moria, same word from 1 Corinthians 
It describes how the unbelieving world views the gospel. They view it as being foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is not confusion. They're not confused. This is moral rejection. This is not complaining about it being incomprehensible, that it cannot be understood. They think they understand it. And with whatever understanding they have of it, they conclude that it's foolish. The text can be understood. The text is plain to read and it makes perfect sense. It's logical. It's consistent. It's without error. The problem is not in the text. The problem is in the interpreter. They understand enough of the text to call it illogical nonsense and then reject it. I'm going to mess up this guy's name, so I'm not going to try. I think it's Os Guinness. He wrote a book, Fool's Talk. Here's what he said. Unbelief abuses truth through a deliberate act of suppression. Unbelief seizes truth, grasps it roughly, silences its voice, and twists it away from God's intended purpose. By itself, truth speaks naturally and clearly, but its voice is censored, blocked, and silenced, so that it is no longer allowed to speak as it does naturally. The natural man, the unbeliever, has no ability to understand the truth, and what little they do understand of it, they reject as being utter nonsense. This is moral rejection. Spiritual things to him are stupid and ludicrous. I have a good example of this. How many of you knew Mark Twain? Here's what Mark Twain said. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. Moral rejection. I don't like what it says. This is not an, ob an objective intellectual assessment of the truth. The parts that he thinks he understands, he doesn't like, and so he rejects them. And in that condition, the unregenerate man has no hope of rightly interpreting the text of Scripture. And the only cure to this problem is for him to be born again because his rejection is a result of his fundamental nature. And unless that nature changes, his conclusion on the text will never change. Back to 1 Corinthians 2. They reject them for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them. Not only is there a moral rejection, but his assessment of revelation is always wrong. Paul says he cannot understand them. This is describing an inability to rightly understand. The word he uses here is the Greek word gnosko. How many of you have heard that before? It's a pretty common word. Here it refers to knowledge that is obtained through experience, study, or some other means. The Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser says of this word gnosko is not merely perceiving things, but embracing them as they really are. The natural man does not have the ability to understand spiritual things as they really are. He cannot understand the text of Scripture as it really is. He comes to all the wrong conclusions about the text, and he can't embrace the truth because he can never find it. Paul later would describe him as being blinded. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, in whose case the God of this age 
has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They've been spiritually blinded so that they cannot perceive spiritual truth. And the result of that blindness is, the, is a warped and distorted means of thinking. They can't think right. That's why God says their wisdom is foolishness. Because it's been twisted and distorted by sin. Romans 1, verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts. Foolish heart was darkened. Foolish here is a different word. It refers to thinking that is void of understanding, foolish or senseless. Romans 1, verse 25 says that in their foolishness, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The unbelieving mind cannot understand the truth, and it is vehemently opposed to God. Colossians 1, verse 21, speaking of all believers, And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, incapable of understanding divine revelation, opposed to God, with a twisted, distorted way of thinking, it leaves him in a condition that it doesn't matter how much study he does, how many books he reads, he can spend all the time in the world studying and striving, but he'll never get to a point where he can understand. Why? Because the unbeliever is a natural man. He has no communion with the Spirit. It can only be discerned spiritually. We see that in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. Examined here refers to the process of studying with a view to understanding something. Again, the Greek dictionary defines this word examined to try to learn the nature or truth of something by the process of careful study, evaluation, and judgment. The unbeliever can try to study, but as a natural man, he cannot study spiritually. He cannot examine the text spiritually. That is to say, he cannot do it under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have the aid of the Spirit. That's only possible when he comes to Christ, when he comes to a saving knowledge of Christ and the Spirit changes him and gives him a new nature. In 2 Corinthians, Paul makes an interesting illustration. Remember the story of Moses? Moses goes up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he spends 40 days in the presence of God. And then he comes back down the mountain, and the people notice something a little bit different about Moses. You remember what was different about him? He's glowing. He has the glory of God reflecting off his face. And of course, all of Israel was like, wow, that's amazing, Moses. Just stay right here, man. I want to get a little more of that glory that's coming off you. What'd they do? Moses, put a veil on. You're glowing. We, we don't want that. Hide us from that glory. We don't want to see that, even if it's reflected off of you. They're not getting a direct shot like Moses got. They are getting it reflected off him. Paul uses that illustration in 2 Corinthians 3. Speaking of the Jews, verse 13. 
and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the consequence of what was being brought to an end. This is his illustration. This is the idea of Moses coming down off the mountain. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, that would be the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted because it is brought to an end in Christ. What he's saying is, look, they still have a veil blocking them from seeing the glory of Christ and the glory of divine revelation. And that veil is there even when they read Scripture. Verse 15, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. They cannot understand it. They are blocked from it. Verse 14, he uses this word hardened. It means to cause someone to have difficulty in understanding or comprehending, harden or petrify. This veil makes it difficult, makes it impossible for them to really come to a knowledge of Scripture. Despite their years and years and years of study, they can't come to the knowledge of the truth because they have a veil that's blocking them. They are unable to understand. They are unable to discern spiritual truth. Verse 16, how do you get rid of this veil? But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. By the way, that's not me capitalizing that. That's the LSB. It's a quote from the Old Testament. The unbeliever's mind and heart are shielded so that no truth gets in. And the only way to get rid of the veil is for them to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, be regenerated, and become a new creature so that they can have spiritual eyes, so that that veil is removed. And that veil being removed is a picture of regeneration. It describes what it means to be born again. The same idea is expressed in Ephesians 2, verse 5. You were dead in sin, but now he has made us alive together with Christ. Corpses don't respond. They don't make choices. The only way you can respond to spiritual truth is if God gives you spiritual life. It's not taking the old man, reshaping him, refashioning him, remolding him, and making him different. You become a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, creation. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Here's a great question. Is that true of you? Are you a new creation? Do you have new desires, new wants, new goals, new aspirations? A new outlook on life? The sin you once loved, you now hate. The righteousness you once hated, you now love. Is that true of you? Are you a new creation? That's the only way you are ever going to understand spiritual truth. The prophet Ezekiel described it. We were talking about a heart that's been hardened. Prophet Ezekiel described it this way, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your uncleanness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You had a heart of stone. It was impervious to truth. Divine revelation couldn't break through. You couldn't understand. 
your heart was rock hard and cold to the truth. But in the new birth, he takes out that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. A heart that can be permeated, that is permeable. It's accepting of divine truth. It can understand truth. And I want you to know, regeneration does nothing to Scripture. When you were an unbeliever, did you ever pick up the Bible and read it and go, huh? But now that you're a believer, you pick it up and go, oh, that makes perfect sense. Regeneration doesn't change Scripture. It changes the interpreter. It does nothing to the text. Regeneration deals with the real problem in biblical interpretation. The interpreter. David Garner, in his book, Did God Really Say?, said this, We understand Scripture not because the Holy Spirit takes that which is opaque or translucent and makes it transparent. Instead, we understand Scripture because the Holy Spirit transforms us, removing the moral blinders from our hearts and our hearts' eyes and enabling us to see Scripture for what it is. Now then people say, well, I'm born again now. I don't need any help with it at all. No, just because you're born again doesn't mean you don't need help. That brings us to our second qualification. First one, you must be born again. Second qualification, you must have Holy Spirit illumination. Regeneration, being born again, is not the same thing as illumination. So let me give you a, a definition. This is from Dr. Clausen at the Master Seminary. This is his definition. He says this, The Spirit's ministry of illumination can therefore be defined as the internal witness of the Holy Spirit that produces an ever-increasing understanding of Scripture, an ever-increasing conviction about the certainty and reliability of its meaning, and an ever-increasing hunger and love for its message. Let me break that down into three parts, three elements, okay? And these, again, are from Dr. Clausen. Illumination is the enabling of the understanding with respect to the meaning of the biblical text. The Holy Spirit gives you the ability to understand what the meaning and come to a right understanding of the meaning. And once you have that understanding, the Holy Spirit then strengthens the certainty in the understanding of that meaning. You become more and more confident that that is exactly what God meant to say. Have you noticed that in your own walk? You got, you got saved, you learned some things, you're like, mm, not so sure about that, but the longer you've been a Christian, the more certain you've become. Third element is the nurturing of love toward that meaning and its blessing for life. You grow in your love for the truth. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul prayed for people to have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this way, that the Spirit would illuminate their minds. In Ephesians 1, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of God. Full knowledge of Him, excuse me. Paul prays that they would receive the spirit of wisdom. Now, some people say this is talking about the person's spirit. That God would give them a, a different spirit. No, you already have a human spirit. You don't need a new human spirit. Peter O'Brien helps us understand what he means by the spirit of wisdom. Notice, he says, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That's an important distinction. Peter O'Brien, since the revelation word group always describes a disclosure given by God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit, 
or is the result of events brought about by them, it is more likely that our phrase is speaking of the Holy Spirit. When he says that God would give you a spirit of wisdom, he's asking that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would give you wisdom and understanding so that you could understand. Let me go back to the verse here. So that you could have a full knowledge of Him. Does that make sense? This is asking for the Holy Spirit to work in you to increase your understanding. Ephesians 1, verse 18. So that, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He's asking that their heart, the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. This term is used oftentimes to describe physical light. If you walk into a dark room and you turn on a flashlight and you shine it on an object, the light allows you to see the object, to see the object for what it really is. Paul uses it to describe the Spirit making known to you transcendent truth, giving you the ability to see and to understand the truth. For what purpose? So that you will know so that you will understand the depths and the truth and the wonders and the glory of salvation in Christ. John MacArthur, when the Holy Spirit works in the believer's mind, he enriches it to understand divine truth that is deep and profound and then relates that truth to life. It's the Spirit and His illumination is the reason why you can read through the Bible a hundred times and every time you go back through it, you see something you didn't see before. Paul requests the same kind of enlightenment in his other letters, Philippians 1, verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Notice he's praying that they would abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He's asking God to bring that to them. Colossians 1.9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Even in the Old Testament, there was understanding that true understanding of the text, true understanding of divine revelation requires God to enable you to do so. Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Psalm 119, verse 73. Your hands made me and established me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Do you pray like that before you read the scriptures? Probably one of the clearest places to go for illumination is 1 John 2, verse 27. And as for you, the anointing whom you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as he has taught you, abide in him. The Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer to compensate for the effects of sin, to compensate for your sinful nature, to remove any veil that remains and give you the ability to understand revelation. 
Any true interpretation of Scripture must be done by a person who has experienced the new birth and is under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, people start asking questions. Okay, does that mean God is revealing new truth today? No. Revelation is God giving new truth that has never been revealed. God's done doing that. He's given all the truth he's going to give. Illumination is not God giving you new truth. It's God opening your eyes so that you can see the truth that he's already given. Everybody see the distinction? It's not new revelation. It's not even a re-delivery of revelation. It's talking more not about the revelation. It's talking about what God does in you so that you can see and understand what he has said. Okay, well, does that mean I can understand divine truth apart from the study of Scripture? No, it's not what that means. The Holy Spirit works through His Word. This is the only source that we have of divine revelation, and the Spirit will never illuminate your mind to understand divine truth outside of Scripture. Okay, well, since the Holy Spirit is guiding my interpretation, then I don't need teachers and pastors. No, that makes Scripture contradict itself. Ephesians 4, verses 11 12 says that God has given you teachers and pastors to equip you and to teach you and train you up for the work of the ministry. The fact of the matter is you cannot rightly interpret the text of Scripture if you don't have the illuminating work of the Spirit. This guy's name is hard to pronounce. Robert McQuilkin. I probably mispronounced that. He wrote this. The role of the Spirit is indispensable to proper biblical interpretation. The Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible, and he illumines Christians who read the words centuries later. Inspiration means that God superintended the writing of Scripture down to the last jot and tittle. Illumination means that the Holy Spirit is now at work in the Christian to help him understand what is already there and to assist in applying the Word authentically. It's the Spirit, when you read the Word of God, it's the Spirit that convicts you and says, you've got sin. It's the Spirit that convicts you to say, I need to change what I'm doing. I need to live differently. And that's only possible if you're under the illumination of the Spirit. Any questions so far? We've looked at two of these. You must be born again. You must have Holy Spirit illumination. Any questions before we go to number three? Let me start with James 2.19. James 2.19, the context there is he's talking about the nature of genuine saving faith. And what he's saying is genuine, genuine saving faith always produces works. And for someone to turn around and say, well, I have faith, but I don't have works, is dishonest. And his point there is even the demons believe. Demons are fallen angels. They believe everything about Jesus. They know the truth and they believe it. You know what it doesn't do? It doesn't produce any change in them. They have no works for their faith to be vindicated. Rejection, moral rejection, does that require an understanding? Yes, it does require some level of understanding. But that doesn't mean that their understanding is correct. And they don't need a correct understanding to turn around and say, I reject this as being foolish. Mark Twain's a great example. It's the parts that I think I understand that I reject. Not the parts that I don't understand. And so, yeah, they think they have an understanding, just like we saw in John 8. They thought they understood. They thought they were believers, but clearly 
they didn't get it. So, any other questions? Yes, sir. No, I wouldn't say it's a waste of time. Yeah, this shouldn't be used as a reason to not evangelize and not, as long as the, uh, the unbeliever is not leading the Bible study or teaching the Bible study, um, but invite your unbelieving friends to Bible study because God also works through his word to save people. But then they understand it. Why? Because the Spirit is changing them, right? That's the Spirit's work. And so, yes, you should invite unbelievers to church. You should invite them to Bible study. Um, but just understand, you shouldn't take Bible study lessons from an unbeliever. They're going to give you the wrong interpretation every single time. And if you'd like an example of that, just go onto YouTube and find some of the unbelievers on YouTube and listen to what they say about it. There's a really popular psychologist today who teaches out of Genesis and Exodus. His interpretations are way off. Does not understand the text. All right, any other questions before we move on? We have one more to look at this morning. You must be born again. You must have Holy Spirit illumination. The final one for this morning. You must be obedient. As we've seen, Bible interpretation is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And apart from His work, you can't understand Scripture. But if that is the case, if you're dependent upon the Holy Spirit for your interpretation, then your relationship to the Spirit is kind of important. His ministry of illumination in the believer's life must always be accompanied by a life that is consistent with His desires and His will. The fastest way to block the ministry of the Spirit in your interpretation is to live a life of disobedience. Is to learn something in the Bible, learn what the Bible says, and then refuse to apply that to your life. In Matthew 13, Jesus describes this. Just to let you know, in Matthew chapters 1 through 12, Jesus is offering the kingdom to the nation of Israel. And he's there to... Matthew's trying to prove Jesus is the king. And they keep rejecting it over and over and over again until Matthew 12, you have the leadership of the nation who blaspheme the Holy Spirit and tell Jesus, you are doing these miracles by the power of Satan. That's the end of Matthew 12. Matthew 13, verse 1, Jesus begins teaching in parables. He begins teaching in parables as a judgment on those unbelieving who blasphemed him. But the disciples don't get it. Why are you now teaching in parables? You were teaching openly before, and so they come to him. Matthew 13, verse 11. They come to him, they ask him, why are you teaching in parables? And he says this, And Jesus answered and said to them, To you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Jesus is speaking to his apostles. And he tells them, you have been permitted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. The word here for know is the same word we looked at earlier, gnosko. A deep acceptance, a deep knowledge and acceptance of the truth to grasp it, to understand it. But the rest, they have not been given that right to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Mysteries here does not refer to things that are unknown. It's not like the old show, Unsolved Mysteries. Eastern Orthodoxies, Roman Catholicism, they, they spend a lot of time talking about mysteries. And these are things we just don't understand. This word here, mysterion, doesn't refer to things that we don't know. It refers to things that were hidden in the past, but are now revealed. They have the privilege of knowing things that were hidden in the past. 
but are now revealed. And those truths that they know are about the kingdom. Unbelievers don't have that privilege. They get everything in parables. That's so they, that God will ensure that he conceals the truth from them. Matthew 13, verse 12, For whoever, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Notice he starts that whoever has. This refers to any believer who has been granted the right and the ability to understand and to know the truth. And if they truly understand it, if they really believe it, it'll change their life. They'll live by the truth. Because they accept it, they believe it, and they apply it every day. Let me say it another way. They are obedient to the truth that they understand. That's part of the idea of knowing the truth. And to them, Jesus says, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. You want to know what the key to growing in your understanding of the text of Scripture is, apart from just studying the text? Obeying what you learn. As you obey more and more, he gives you more and more insight into the text. Why would he give you more insight just so you can ignore what you've heard? Leon Morris, when anyone uses the spiritual truth he has, that truth grows. More is added to it. By contrast, if he does not use it, he finds that it vanishes away little by little. If you're not going to obey, if you're not going to apply the truth that you're learning, you're going to start losing it. Verse 12 again. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. This is not saying that unbelievers are granted an understanding of revelation. They think they understand it. But they don't obey it. They certainly don't obey the truth. And so even what they think they know will be taken away from them. And if you say, well, that's not what that text says. Yeah, but Jesus says this in another place. Luke 8, verse 18. So take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. You can't just come to church hear a whole bunch of truth, and refuse to obey it and expect that God's going to continue to give you more and more truth. You need to start by being obedient to what you already know. John MacArthur sums it up this way. All men are either progressing or regressing spiritually. No person remains static in his relationship with God. The longer a person knows and is faithful to Christ, the more his Lord is faithful to reveal his truth and power. The longer a person rejects the knowledge of God he has, whether much or little, the less of God's truth he will understand. Willful human rejection leads to divine judicial rejection. He's not saying that as a believer you can face, you can lose your salvation. But he is saying that if you're a believer and you're refusing to obey what you know, don't expect to continue to learn more. Because your understanding is based upon your receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
The, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you the ability to understand. And if you're in sin, Ephesians 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grieve here refers to an emotional wound. You might say it this way, you don't offend the Holy Spirit. When you sin, how many of you lose your assurance of salvation when you go into sin? You lose your, your assurance of salvation because assurance is something that the Spirit provides to you. And when you go into sin, he pulls that away from you and denies you that as a form of discipline. You've grieved him. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul talks about quenching the Spirit. He says, do not quench the Spirit. Quench here has the idea of throwing a wet blanket over a fire. And you suppress the fire and you stop it from burning. You stop it from producing heat. Sinful behavior, evil living can grieve and suppress the ministry of the Spirit in the life of a believer. This is why when you go into sin, once you commit one sin, it's so much easier to go and commit another one. Because you've grieved the Spirit, you've suppressed His work, and it's easier for you to run headlong into sin because He's no longer providing you the same support and the same ministry He was before. The work of the Spirit has been hindered. And if that's the kind of life you're living, it's going to leave you without help when you come to study the text of Scripture. You will not be able to come to a right understanding of the text. And this need for obedience to understand the text is actually stated in the Old Testament. You remember Ezra? Listen to what Ezra says. Ezra 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh, and to practice and to teach his statute, statute and judgment in Israel. Ezra had a goal. His goal was, I want to study the law of Yahweh. I want to study what God has said. And it wasn't, I want to study the law just so I can, you know, be the smartest guy at Bible study this week. No, I want to study the law for one purpose, so that I can go and practice it, so I can go and obey what I've learned so I can apply it and live it out in my life. And then, when he knows it, and he's living it out, then he says, and then I'll go and teach it. Someone who comes to an understanding of Scripture, someone who spends time learning about the Scriptures and learning revealed truth, coming to church and hearing sermons preached and hearing Bible studies at church, and then goes home and ignores everything they've learned, they're deluded. They're deluded. That's not my opinion. James 1, verse 20. But become doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Obedience is necessary for biblical interpretation. We are called to be people who know and love the truth, who obey the truth, and are not blinded and deluded. Any questions? We finished a little early today, but that's okay, because every other week I've been finishing late. Balances out. Yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, you can really see the foolishness of, of the unbelieving mind when they turn around and say, look at the complex world around you. Look at the complexity of your own body. And then just say, well, that just formed on its own. That would be like saying, you know, I have this really cool Rolex watch. No, I don't. But if I had a cool Rolex... 
And I told you, this Rolex just formed itself. The wind blew all the parts in and just assembled itself. You would think I'm crazy. That's foolishness. And same idea with the foolishness of looking at the world. And yeah, you can see how foolish the, the unbelieving mind is and how much they reject spiritual truth there. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, Sarah Young, I think she's the one who wrote Jesus Calling. And she, she wrote the book, and the book is filled with all the things that Jesus supposedly said to her. Well, if that's Jesus talking, then why don't we put that in the next book in here? I mean, if that's really Jesus talking, we have to take that as being absolutely authoritative. But, of course, we know that's not Jesus speaking to her. So... Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you should have a, a fear and a trembling about how you come to the text. And you should want to get it right. And it should be a terrifying idea that you would come to the text that's clear and that can be understood and then turn around and say, God has said this when he hasn't actually said it. And I think that's one of the scary things for people like Sarah Young. She's out there saying, God has said, and he didn't say any of that. And the same thing when we take Scripture and we get our interpretation wrong. We're saying God has said something that he hasn't said. So approach it with fear and trembling, absolutely. Because with that fear and trembling, you know what you'll end up doing? You'll spend more time praying and being dependent upon the Spirit, which is always better. You know, I had someone tell me, well, you know, if anyone ever saw God, they would never turn around and sin. And then you just look through the Bible and like Adam and Eve saw God turned around and sin. Israel saw all those miracles and saw the manifestation of his presence turned around and sin. Judas spent three years with Jesus, saw all the miracles turned around and betrayed him. It's just amazing how sinful and wicked the human heart is. It really is. Amazing in a bad way, not a good way. Anything else before we close? No? Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we do thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he has regenerated us, that he's given us spiritual life, that you have given us spiritual eyes that we can see, that we can come to a knowledge and an understanding of the truth of your word, the truth of salvation, the truth of who Christ is. And we uh, do ask that you would help us not just to be hearers, that we would be doers. Uh, that the Word of God would change the way we live, that we would live in accordance with it, that we would submit to it in every way possible, and that we would live lives that are pleasing and glorifying to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.